At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email campbelllawreporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Hello, and welcome to Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. My name is Jenna Nichols, your host, along with our guest, Satana DeBerry, Durham County's DA. Madam DA has an extensive and impressive education. She attended Princeton, receiving a degree in sociology, then went to Duke University for law school, and then went back to receive a master's in business administration. After law school, Madam DA was a criminal defense attorney in her hometown of Hamlet, North Carolina, then served as general counsel for North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, and then became the executive director of a nonprofit, North Carolina Housing Coalition, all before becoming. Durham County's DA. Madam DA has been able to change the face of Durham County's DA's office. She understands that resources are not endless and that Durham needed to adjust for the citizens. Some changes we will discuss today is the shifting of resources to violent crimes, reducing pretrial incarceration except when necessary, and finally using more diversion programs and restorative justice programs for the citizens of Durham County. Now, Madam DA has shown that criminal law can change and will change, but we need to remember that 400 years of history takes time. And we as legal professionals have an obligation to address and confront aspects of the law that need to change. So welcome, Madam DA. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, I always like to figure out why someone takes the role that they do. So can you tell us um, what your role is as a district attorney and what made you become a district attorney? Sure. District attorneys in North Carolina are constitutional officers, which means they are elected by the, the people of their jurisdiction. And they have 100 percent. Uh, discretion in seeking justice in the criminal justice system. It's the district attorney's role to handle every criminal matter in their jurisdiction. And that's everything from speeding and driving uh, while without a license to uh, homicide. So it's a, a wide range of criminal law. And in my office, we see our role as um, not just prosecuting cases, but holding people, trying to hold people accountable in the way that is most appropriate um, for the crime that they have been convicted of. Now, before we get into the nuts and grits of your day-to-day 
office, what is your favorite part of being a DA? My favorite part of being a DA is working for the people of Durham County. I take this seriously. You know, you run for office, people put a lot of their own faith about the system, a lot of their own ideas of how they think things should be into you. And so I am just, you know, my favorite part is is doing what I think the people of Durham County asked me to do, which is, you know, a system that is fair and just and equitable. Now, how in today's atmosphere, in light of the negative image of policing, how does the impact of your role get impacted? Sure. Well, you know, justice is like art. People think they know it when they see it. And that is really, I think, in our system, been molded by newspapers and your local TV news, right, where all they talk about is the absolute worst things that are happening in your community, as well as by television and fictional uh, procedural shows that have you thinking that everything that happens down at the courthouse is murder and rape and arson and armed robbery, when in fact, most of the criminal justice system is really low-level cases. In Durham County, we have about 30,000 criminal cases a year. Only about 10% of those are violent crime or serious crime. Um, most of them are traffic cases or low-level drug possession, misdemeanors, just really things that are mostly indicative of someone's substance use abuse problem, um, indicative of somebody living in the community where they in a community where they don't have a lot of economic opportunity, where they don't have access to mental health care. And so we really in our office want to separate the serious and violent things from the low level things in which we want to hold people accountable. We don't want people, you know, doing that in our community, but we also don't want to make their lives and we also don't want to make their lives harder as they try to either get better or get their issues under control. In what ways have you changed how people are held accountable? Well, what we want to do is really think about kind of what we as a community, what keeps us safe. And we want to be focused on those things that are a risk to public safety. So the most serious and violent things. And then for the low-level things or the things that are really, really have to deal with people's substance abuse issues or mental health problems or homelessness or poverty, we want to work with our community to craft solutions, whether those be that we divert those from court. As you said in your opening, we only have so many resources and we have more resources out in the community. And so we want to divert the lower level cases to a setting that is most appropriate for those cases, whether that be treatment, uh, whether that be some type of opportunity for restitution, uh, or whether that is uh, some type of mental health treatment or something else that will address the, the issue at hand while keeping them out of the criminal justice system. Now, keeping them out, the lower level crime uh, or 
defendants who commit lower level crimes, does that aid in allowing your office to focus on the violent crimes? Absolutely. You know, we only have a certain number of prosecutors in our office and it takes a very long time to prosecute a serious or violent case. And that means prosecutor time can be directed towards the more serious things. Doesn't take so much time to move a lower level case to some type of diversionary court. or So we really want to be spending our limited resources on the things that are um, you know, most violent in our community. And I know personally, law and order before law school, I had a reference for time of how fast things moved. And they made it seem like, you know, you committed a crime. Next month, you're in front of the judge having your hearing. And it's just not that way. <laughs> um, and Absolutely how, not. And how do you communicate that to your citizens, the citizens of Durham County, that, you know, violent crime is the priority, but it takes time? Yeah, yeah I think uh, law and order and CSI um, made prosecuting cases harder. Like you said, they make people think that, you know, the police always find the person who committed the crime and that, you know, there are there's a whole team of law enforcement and a whole team of prosecutors working on every single case. And I think that does a, a disservice to um, to our communities because that's kind of what people come in expecting, especially if you've been the victim of crime. And um, you come in expecting it to be that the person the police arrested is the person who did it. Um, your expectation is that everybody knows that and uh, that it will be quick because everybody knows that. And so what we try to do is we have an explainer series on our website where we try to really be transparent about our work to the community and explain really what is behind uh, a case, especially a serious case, and why they take so long. And why it's, you know, sometimes a person who was arrested is not the person. And that there's a different standard. This is a, you know, a, a great issue for law students in the law school community, right? Because one of the first things you learn in criminal law, right, is there's a different standard for arrest than there is for conviction. And, you know, people out in the community, lay people don't necessarily know that. And so we try to return as much information to the community about how we do our work as possible and you know, sometimes we frame it around what they know from TV, and sometimes we we don't. So. And with that, with crimes always come uh, victims. And how is your outreach with victims changed because of COVID? Oh wow, that's a that's a great question. I think the whole court system has has been revolutionized because of COVID. When we first went out with COVID, the legal assistants in my office didn't have laptops. They only had desktops. And it wasn't until COVID that really we realized, oh my gosh, you know, people, they are not able to do their work. They still have to come in and still um, have to subject themselves to um, getting sick. And the same with victims. You know, there's, there are, I think, legal issues, especially around serious crime in which there has been a victim around um, confrontation issues, constitutional confrontation issues, right? So offending get 
is a defendant actually confronting their witness, their their the person who's accusing them, their accuser on a Zoom? Does that meet the constitutional requirements? Do victims feel heard if we're just having video chats with them? Are they are we as prosecutors able to get those you know kind of small visual cues? You know, great example is we um, prosecute, of course, sexual assault in both adults and children. And those cases take a long time to develop because we have to build relationships with the victims. And a lot of that is just being there in person with them, listening to their stories. And people can't feel that on Zoom. So we've tried to, when possible, interview folks remotely, but we've pared down our who's actually in court so that we can have victims in court when necessary so that they can speak to their own, speak for themselves, give their own impact statements. Um, so the defendant has that constitutional confrontation and that we are, but it, it, it is difficult to have, have victims feel like uh, they're being heard. It's hard in regular times. It's even difficult, more difficult in COVID. And do you would you say your work with um, victims and violent crimes uh, change how you view yourself as a DA, or did you already have how you knew you were going to handle it when you walked in the door oh, that yeah. first day? Yeah, I I did not know how I was going to handle anything when I walked in the door. Um, well, I take that back. I did know how I was going to handle anything. Um, actually, dealing with people and victims has really changed that. Um, you know, one of the first things that we learned was for our families of homicide victims, they they did not feel tended to. They did not feel like the prosecutors listened to them. They didn't feel like they had enough information about what was going on. And so we've been doing quarterly, we do a, a family session for the families of, of homicide victims where we talk through the process I bring all of the, the prosecutors in my office who handle homicide cases. If they want to, they can talk um, to that prosecutor in that setting. They get access to me. They can complain if they need to about uh, their prosecutor, about the process, about the legal system, whatever they feel on their heart that they want to talk about. We do that in partnership with um, the Religious Coalition for Nonviolent Durham, because one of the things you quickly learn as a prosecutor is we do not have the tools to deal with the grief and the loss that victims feel. You know, our priority is to prosecute the case, make sure that we have the evidence tight, that we can convict that person. And then often, you know, prosecutors move on to the next case. And the families may have lots of conversation, and then when the cases close, the case is done, and they're out there by themselves. And so the Religious Coalition for Nonviolent Durham helps provide the things that we can't. You, they, you don't have to be religious to be a part of it. They themselves, the people who work with it are religious. They see that as, as the, their, this is their religion in action, their faith in action, but they will work with anyone. Um, they have grief groups and they have support groups. They talk to us if a victim's family 
gives uh, permission for them to be involved in the case, they will be as involved as necessary. So I, I think I, I did not realize, I'm going to take that back. In my family, we have been victims of violence. You know, I've, I had an aunt who was murdered. I've had several cousins who have been murdered. And I have people in my family who have been convicted of murder. And so I know the grief that those families feel, but it's, I, I didn't know how much of that grief, how much they depend on the criminal justice system to help them resolve that grief. And so it, it has been, that has probably been the biggest challenge in these last few years is almost always the, the it's almost always a victim's mother who comes in to um, see the prosecutors invariably, right? They look like me, they're my age. And, and so it feels very personal for me. Yeah, and I know from my internship, the one um, family I did see speak, I think it was the hardest to hear the mother in her grief because I believe it was her only child she was putting in the grave. And it was hard to hold back tears in that moment. Um, And how would you, or excuse me, what advice would you give to attorneys and aspiring attorneys, especially females and minorities, because you do represent both uh, so proudly and so well uh, for their professional journey? Yeah, I would say, don't let imposter syndrome get you. You, law school is no joke, right? If you have made it through law school and you have passed the bar, you have proven yourself, right? And um, it it took a lot for you to get there. And you still have all that in, all that drive, all that ambition. Um, and, you know, just remember that you are absolutely qualified to do this work. You are that you are important in doing this work. You know, the law needs as many different voices as possible, right? Because that is how the law grows through the engagement of ideas and policy and everybody's experience matters. And so I would say that on that side and on the the client side, just remember that, you know, your clients are people and no matter what you do, whether you end up doing criminal law or you, you know, work with the biggest corporate titans in America, uh, they will challenge you. The clients will challenge you because, you know, they, this is their only case, right? They don't care about all your other clients. You got to care about all your other So just, you know, when you're in that moment with your client, be in that moment with your client and understand uh, how important this is to them. And, uh, and and how you show up matters. So. And how would you say uh, leading with purpose means to you? Wow. So for me, leading with purpose means that I bring, um, I hold myself to a certain standard um, of what I, what justice is and what being fair is. And I try to impart that to the people who work with me through my own actions, right? And through how I talk about the work and uh, how I deal with people and the respect that I show. And so for me, leading with purpose means that I, I serve as some example for who's coming after. They may get 
whatever little piece of what I'm doing that they take and incorporate into to their practice and their work, I'm going to kind of always be giving you something that you can use. Awesome. And thank you so much for uh, meeting with me today and sharing uh, your experiences and how you've been changing Durham County DA's office for the better. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform.